All right, who's ready for the word today? <clears throat> so we've been in a series for the last number of weeks, if you're just joining us. Um, that series is called Walk the Walk. We've been traveling through very thoroughly the epistle of James, breaking different parts of that down. By the time we're done, we'll have really covered the better part of this particular letter. And James, we know, was the brother of our Lord, and that he ended up becoming a very prominent leader in the New Testament church, specifically in Jerusalem. James's letter is being written to Jewish believers. That's important to note because James's letter is kind of well-known and famous for calling uh, into the church and, and asking people, telling people, it's time to level up. We've got to do better because what was happening is that things that are a part of culture, things that are a part of the world's system that people struggle with were beginning to make their way into the church and people within the family of God were beginning to look the same as the rest of the world around them. How many people know that as followers of Christ, we are not meant to blend in with culture, but to live a life of victory over the things that tr trouble culture so that we stand out and represent what a life of victory and freedom looks like, right? So James was saying, as was needed, as needed in any generation, any day in the church to say, hey guys, we need to run these things out of the church so that there is authentic Christianity not stale, bland Christianity that's been watered down, but authentic Christianity that is being represented in the communities around us. And so um, we're going to go today into James chapter 5. We're going to read starting off verses 1 through 5. And like we've been doing, we kind of spring out of our anchoring text and begin to examine some of these biblical truths that James was talking about then, but also asking ourselves now, I encourage you to ask yourselves this now, Lord, what are you saying to me today? Now, I'd like to present the question as well as, God, what are you saying to the church today? So James chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Hmm. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Wow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, Lord, we're asking you today to speak to us, to help us to peer into your word and your truths. God, we're asking you that through the power of your word and our submission and humility and our faith, God, that you would bring transformation into our lives, that you would bring edification into your church, into your bride, that we would be effective witnesses for you 
on the earth in our day and in this generation. We ask you, Lord, to speak. We say that your servants are listening. And we just be your heart towards the Lord this moment, but just be saying to him, God, we give you permission to come into any room in our house that you want to come into. Every door is open. Come into our lives. Inspect us. Sift us. God, help us to be the people whom you've created us to be. Our faith and confidence is in the power of your Holy Spirit alone to do such things. We thank you, God, for what you're doing and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so opening verses in chapter 5 that we just read are where we're starting out. And we're going to talk today about the subject of greed. Greed. And so what James is doing is he's, he's calling out you know, these different things that are like, what I would say are bad fruit. You know, they can, they can come out of our lives. They can come out of believers' lives. But we also look at the antitheses of these things when we're examining them, and we say, you know, there's good fruit that can and should replace this. And so the antithesis of greed, I would suggest to you, would be generosity. Generosity. And furthermore, I would say, that God is calling us as his people to be a generous people. Not, not just an act of generosity. I mean, those are great. Listen, I, I'll say it like this, that we would live a generous lifestyle. Lifestyle across the board. The biblical definition of greed is this. It is to desire more of things than are needed, lusting for a great number of temporal things that go beyond what God determines is eternally best, beyond His preferred will. Another word that is often interchanged with greed in the Scripture is covetousness, or to covet, to have an unhealthy desire or envy for something that God's determined is not fit for us. We see this a lot. There was a famous writer and philanthropist in the 1800s in Europe by the name of James Ogilvie, and he said this about greed. I really like this. He said that greed has a way of taking things that are meant to be good and then turning them bad, like turning them into bad fruit in our lives. He said it this way, greed turns love into lust, Leisure into sloth, hunger into gluttony, honor into pride, righteous indignation into anger, and admiration into envy. If it weren't for greed, I suspect that we would suffer fewer of these other vices. It's interesting, isn't it? So it's essentially feeling the constant need for more. How many people got up this morning, and enjoyed that extra hour of sleep. I'm talking to the second service, so I know you guys did. <laughs> enjoyed the second hour of sleep. Now, how many people, after enjoying that extra hour of sleep, may have said, boy, I wish I had another extra hour of sleep? <laughs> Nobody's going to turn to the neighbor that rose their hand and say, hey, don't be greedy. 
I, I woke up this morning and I went to, I was changing my watch. I went to roll it back the hour. And then I went down and I started to change the date back a whole day too. And I'm like, wait a minute, get an extra hour. You want an extra day? I'm struggling with this. Okay. But greed, couple misconceptions about greed. I'd like you to think about are number one misconception that only wealthy people are greedy. That's a stigma. That's kind of a judgment, right? A prejudice that sometimes we have as we see people who are successful or wealthy and we think, well, they must be greedy. They always want more. Some are, for sure. And, and the Bible makes it clear that riches of the world, cares of the world are a temptation into greed. But there are some of the wealthiest people who are some of the most generous people that I know, right? So there's a misconception that just because people are wealthy, they would be greedy. Here's a second misconception that poor people can't be generous, or people that maybe just don't have as much, whatever, that, that they can't be generous. Tell that to the widow who Jesus said, when she just gave the little she had, he said she gave more than everybody, right? So those are a few misconceptions. But if we will, if we will let God work out in our heart um, a heart of generosity where we live a lifestyle of generosity, here's what I want to encourage you with. Generosity rivals greed. It will run greed out of our lives. It will keep it at bay. It will run it out if it's there. And it will be like a hedge of stability and strength that keeps greed from creeping in. Greed is one of the things that the enemy tries to use in people's lives to pull them in. When Moses was talking to his father-in-law and his father-in-law was telling him about how to appoint leaders in the nation of Israel, you remember that? He said you appoint leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. This is interesting. He gave some qualifications. He said, here are the kind of men that you should select. Men who fear God, men who love truth, and listen to this, men who, and they're able, so that means they have the ability, and men who hate covetousness, despise it. So he's saying generosity is a qualification for leadership in the kingdom. Hmm. We're meant to be generous. In fact, a lifestyle of generosity is one of the marks that distinguishes God's people in the world. God said, I want you to be a generous people. He said this to Israel so that the nations around you will know that you serve me. Because let me ask you this. Do we serve a generous God? You can't get more generous than him, can you? He gave the most important thing he could, anyone could give. He gave his firstborn son. He gave all for us. And so God has already modeled for us what he's asking us to do. And he's saying, by living generously, you will actually re reflect me. You'll represent me in the world around you. Now, how amazing is it to think about this, that this is part of citizenship in the kingdom part of God's plan for our life. It's a life that has to be lived by faith, not by reasoning, make that point, but that God wants to provide a life of abundance for every single one of us so that we would be vessels and conduits to be able to very easily let go of the riches of resources God wants to give us, that we would steward them well, and that by being free-flowing vessels for things to go through and out of us into a world around us, that people could know God through that. Wow. Live abundantly. Not so you can have everything you need. You will have everything you need. The overflowing vessel is always full. 
Does that make sense? It's always full. It's the overflow. God says, I want you to, I want you to scatter that. I want you to share that. And by that, people will know that you follow me. Hmm. So I want to pull a few things out of James chapter 5, these verses that we just opened up with. Three things. They're just these little statements in those verses. I don't know if you're like this when you read the Bible, but for me, I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. Hmm, that kind of stung a little bit, you know, when you heard it. And I'll tell you what those three things are so you know where we're going, and then we'll break each one of them down. But he talks about heaping up treasure. He talks about having a fattened heart. And then he talks about how one's flesh can be eaten like fire. Hmm. So we're going to look at those things. But point number one, two kinds of treasure. Two kinds of treasure. So you notice that James said you've, you're heaping up treasure. You've heaped up treasure for the last days. James is no doubt aware of the teachings of Christ. So let's go back and see something that Christ said that James is essentially reinforcing. Okay, that is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where, neither thie- and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wow. So Jesus talks about it, James talks about it, Paul talks about it too. And he's talking about different kinds of treasure. So for each of us, in the way we live our lives, we have decisions to make. God wants to provide resources. He wants to bring things into our possession. We have a decision for how we exchange those things. And and what James is saying, what Jesus is saying, is you can store up through your life earthly treasure. You can accumulate much earthly treasure, or you can live your life in a way that's directed towards kingdom things, and by being obedient and living through kingdom principles, you can actually store up heavenly treasure that's reserved and prepared for you as a reward on the other side. Now, what do you think is the greater, and what do you think is the lesser? Wow, that was quiet. All right. What do you think is the greater and what do you think is the lesser? I think it's obvious, right? And many times what happens is that people exchange the greater for the lesser. They're accumulating earthly treasure. And the way they invest their time, their talent, their treasure, they're they're trying to accumulate things to build things up for themselves. And God says there's another way you can actually live in a manner that you're investing all of those resources in a way that accumulates heavenly treasure. What are we storing up with our lives? Hmm. One has eternal significance, one has earthly significance. He says this about earthly treasure. All of it is decaying. It's transient. It's fading away. Like It doesn't matter how much you go get of earthly treasure in a lifetime, at the end of the lifetime, it's all gone anyway. It's all passing away. Paul says you came into this world with nothing and you're going out with nothing. 
He's talking about earthly possessions and material wealth. But we can actually go out with heavenly treasure built up and stored up as a reward. Wow, that's powerful. It makes me think about an old parable. It's just a parable. It's just a little story. This is not a scripture, but I think you'll get the point, okay? This, this wealthy man, he dies, he goes to heaven. And St. Peter meets him at the gate. And St. Peter's showing him around, and he's seeing all of this amazing just wealth of heaven and everything that's there. He's taking him along, and he sees this huge, beautiful mansion. And the guy says to St. Peter, like, oh, wow, whose mansion is that? And he said, that's your butler's. So the guy's like, wow, okay, well, if that's my butler's. I can't even imagine what is here for me. And they go a little further down, and all of a sudden, they kind of get smaller and the guy looks over, he says, well, who's Shaq? Who's, whose little hut is that over there? He says, well, that's yours. Wait a minute, butler mansion, me in a hut? He's like, I don't get it. He's like, well, here's the deal. We can only build up here with the materials that you send ahead of time. It's a pretty good thought, right? We're building up earthly treasure. Jesus also said it this way in the Gospel of Mark. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? So think about value assessment here. Jesus is saying you could take everything in the world that there would be to accumulate. You could add up Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, all of them. Everything there is to accumulate in the world. All of the wealth that could be accomplished. Here's what he said. All of it combined isn't even worth the value of one soul. Wow. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? God wants us to focus on heavenly things, and he wants to give us an abundance of resources, but so that we can invest it in kingdom work, and in doing so, it's going to yield heavenly treasure. So I'm just going to ask you to think about that. What would you rather invest your life in, earthly treasure or heavenly treasure? And the beauty is, is when we're investing in heavenly treasure, we're operating by God's economy and his principles, and we will always have what we need to do the work that God is calling us to. Amen? All right, point number two, a fattened heart. That strikes me. He says, you're fattening your heart as in the day of slaughter. Hmm. Well, we just read there, in Matthew, where Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? So what we value, what we, what we esteem, what we view as treasure, and what we invest in, as we go in that direction, those are the things that continue to fill our heart. So if we're, if we're in valuing earthly treasure <laughs> more than heavenly treasure, then, then we're going to fill our heart more with worldliness, he says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so if I value kingdom work, then God's going to continue to do more of his work in my heart as opposed to worldliness that can set in. He says that you, when you are greedy and desire for more always, he said that that's like uh, you're fattening your heart for the day of slaughter. Now, you may know this, you may not, but when it comes to fattening as in the day of slaughter. This is what he's talking about. Is they would raise their livestock, right? Cattle, sheep, things like that. Those, that livestock, they would graze and freely roam 
over the range, and then when it would get close to the time of slaughter, these, these livestock are ready for you know, eating, they would bring them in, and they would kind of corral them, and then they would feed them up on really high nutritious, you know, fattening foods, high, cal- high caloric foods, fatten them up. And so just think about it. The animal's thinking, oh, this is great. I'm eating high on the hog. I'm getting all this great stuff. This is feeling so good. Meanwhile, that animal is being prepared for the day of slaughter. Some of you are like, I'm totally going to be a vegetarian now. Thank you very much for describing that. Okay. Sorry. But that's the, that's the comparison that he's making. He's saying when you're, when you're feasting on heavenly or on earthly treasure, You're bringing upon yourself greater levels of destruction that will come. But God wants to provide everything that we need through his disbursement. But we've got to understand, think about this, the difference between a need and a want. That's something we've all got to wrestle with, right? A need and a want. Being very straight with you, there are many times... I thought as we're building the church, right, God's building the church, we needed something. And then it didn't happen that way, the provision for that. And so where I land on that is if if God hasn't provided for it, then he must know that right now we don't need that. And, And that can be applied in our own lives as well. Does that make sense? A need versus a want. Another example. When I open up the Bass Pro Shops catalog that comes every single month, there are needs in there that have to be met. Okay? Needs. Not once. My wife, she says, I can't send you to the grocery store. She's like, I can't. She gives me a list. She says, no, look, I only need the things on this list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just give me the list. Yeah. I don't think I have ever come home with just the things that are on the list. I'm forbidden to go to Costco anymore. I can't even do that. All right. Know the difference between a need and a want. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16. He says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He was faithful in what is least, is faithful also in much. That's another misconception. People think, well, when I have more, then I can be generous. I'm telling you right now, if you're not being generous in what you have, you're not going to be generous when you have more. It's a hard issue, not a resource issue. Mm, okay, 11. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, how will, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will love the one and hate the other, or else he will be loyal to one and, bes- and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, this is interesting because Jesus personifies mammon when he speaks about it. And when you look back historically through uh, the Bible, you know that there is a Syrian god of riches. The Aramaic word was, was how they translated mammon. So it was an idol. It was a demonic spirit. So Jesus is saying, like, 
Mammon is a spirit, and it's evil, and it wants servants. It wants people to serve it. And God says, you can't serve both. You can't serve me and serve mammon. He says, and it all has to do with how you handle unrighteous mammon, which is basically saying that money and resources are neutral. They're not inherently good or bad. It's, it's what we do with that that makes the difference. And Jesus is saying, serve me, not mammon. Mammon wants followers. Mammon wants people. The Syrian god of riches, which just meant you wouldn't have anything if you didn't worship that god. So when people serve mammon, they think they have to have more. And if they don't pursue more, that they're never going to have what they need. And here's the deal. That is completely contrary to how the kingdom works. God says the kingdom works like this. I provide everything that you need and there will be abundance and then you use it for my purposes and to build the kingdom. And that requires a life of trust. It's, 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 it doesn't naturally make sense to the mind that somehow I can be generous and I can give more away and God can bring more. But I'm telling you, that's how the kingdom works. We can be generous, extravagantly generous, and in a place of faith and trust, know that God is going to continue to bless us and meet all of the needs that we have, not just for ourselves, but so that we can continue to be generous for others. It's like our faith puts a demand, if you will, on the promise that God has already made. And, and God gives us principles to live by, to protect us from a spirit of mammon getting into our lives. Here are the principles. He says, first of all, I want you to bring the tithe into the storehouse, the first 10%, the first fruits of all increase that God has blessed us with. So you bring the first tenth because that portion is holy, which means it's it's sacred, it's sanctified, it's set apart. What is it set apart for? It's set apart for God. He says that portion is mine. It's not because God needs it. It's because he's interested in our heart. And if we bring the first fruits, the first 10%, the first portion was always the best. So what we're doing is we're saying, God, we're giving you yours back, returning it to you, and then we are trusting for the provision of everything else that you say you'll bless us with. He says the foundation for generosity is the tithe because it, it brings us into a life of trust and of covenant, which is amazing because God owns everything anyway, right? So it's not a supply issue. It's a hard issue. Beyond the tithe, this is amazing. I know some people like, like, whoa, this is big, okay? Beyond the tithe, we are also called and instructed to sow seed generously. It would be called alms or offerings, even above and beyond the tithe. Well, Pastor, you telling me I should be giving away more than 10%? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you, based on the Bible, that we are to live generously, and we can, and there'll never be a shortage or a lack for what God wants to give us for what we need to do His work. See, when they brought the tithe, it says, here's what they, God says. So you're going to bring a, I'm going to produce a crop that's going to be a bountiful crop. The harvest is going to be rich. 
And I want you to gather the harvest and I want you to bring the first fruits, the tithe, the first early fruit off the stalks. Gather that up and bring that into the storehouse, into the temple. That's mine. So when people don't, do, don't tithe, I'm just telling you, this is what you think. They're taking from the portion that's God's. And God says that, that's, he calls it robbing from him, Malachi 3. And so he says, You're gonna, I'm going to help you produce an abundant crop, harvest crop, bring the first fruits into the storehouse. Then as the crop matures and then it's ready for the full harvest, then he says, now I want you to go reap the harvest, everything you need for all of your family, all of the people in your nation. And, and then here's what I also want you to do. I want you to leave the four corners of all your fields up. Don't take those down. Because I want the sojourner, the stranger, the poor, the widows. I want all those in need to be able to come and glean from the excess. I'm telling you, that's what the kingdom looks like, guys overflow, abundance, but it's not a life that can be tapped into by any way other than faith and trust in God. I'm telling you that he's interested in our heart. Mm. The kingdom works paradox to the world and to culture. Culture would say, go get it, get all you can, accumulate it, hoard it. You never know when you're going to run out. You never know when the economy is going to crash. The tither, the generous person says, God is always going to provide for me. When God was calling the people out of Israel or out of Egypt, you know what he said? This is in Deuteronomy. He said, here's how this works. Think about the kingdom. Think about you as a child of God stepping into kingdom principles and living by heaven's economy instead of the world. He says, here's how this works. The land I'm calling you to, it is not like the land that I just brought you out of, which was Egypt. He says, in Egypt, you had vegetable gardens and you had to dig canals and you had to water those by hand and by foot. So they were, they were getting water and they were bringing it in to irrigate their vegetable gardens. Obviously nothing wrong with a garden, but in perspective of a crop, it's very limited. Would you agree? She says, in, in, in Egypt, you were watering vegetable gardens by hand. I want to remind you that Egypt represented bondage. <laughs> he says, but... And the land that I'm calling you to, it's a land that flows with milk and honey. And listen to this. And it's a land that will drink from the rains of heaven. And it's a land that I, the Lord, will always watch over and always care for. It's a, the difference in the, in the comparison is man's providing for himself versus God is a pro, providing abundantly by his means. Wow. And he says, that's the kingdom, and that's how it works, and that's what I'm inviting you to step into. Wow. I love that. Mm. Come into the land of blessing. Last point, number three. Burned by fire. Right? Burned by fire. So when people are succumb to greed, temptation, spirit of mammon, you're going to need more. You're going to need more. You don't tell you what else mammon does. It causes people to be afraid to release. And God says, I want you to live to give, not live to get. Mammon makes people afraid to release. It's interesting that the Antichrist, when he reigns, will control money. 
won't be allowed to buy or sell unless you pledge subservience to his system, right? Just goes to show you how powerful this thing can be. But it says that you can, you can be burned like fire when you succumb to greed, which means that it's only going to harm you. It's only going to bring destruction into your life. You think you're accumulating and getting more and getting more. There's never an end in that road. It's, it's an ongoing chase and pursuit. It always leaves you empty, and you're just going to have to keep going. And so when you pursue it, it says your, your flesh is burned like fire because you are going to end up walking into levels of destruction for your own life. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he says it this way, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, listen, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's like they're falling on the sword they set up for themselves by chasing after these things. But when we live according to a generous lifestyle and we trust in God to provide, there's never going to be a lack. Let me tell you what it helps to develop in us, okay? Which is, in my opinion, a strong burden that we need to see the church really continue to get a hold of more and more in our day. And, and this is what it does. When we know we're trusting in God as our provider and not the world system, then it will cause us not to be afraid to lose things for Jesus Christ. And too many people, I think nowadays, are afraid to lose a position, status, wealth, whatever it might be. If I stand firm on what's true, then possibly I'm going to lose things that I value. And if we live according to the kingdom, knowing that God is our provider and no system of man, then we can walk in obedience to the Lord and we can boldly declare the things of God in our generation and we can never be afraid of loss or of something taking from us from man that God says, I alone am the one who provides for you. Take my job, God will give me another one. Take my wealth, God will rebuild in a day what it took a person a lifetime to accumulate in natural ability. He's the God who restores tenfold. But we trust in that because church, if, if the church is consistent of people in our day who are afraid to lose things when they stand up for Christ, I just want to ask you, how effective can the church really be in culture? But if the church is, is understanding, no, God is my provider. He owns it all. I'm in covenant with him. He's the source of my provision. I'm living by kingdom principles well, I don't have to work for my own because God is providing. I'm a steward. Stewards don't waste, but they're generous with what they have because they know the supply is never running out. Amen? Amen. So close with this. What kind of treasure are we heaping up? Right? You... You've got resources, I've got resources, 
We all have time. Just got another hour of that. That's pretty good. All right. We got time. We got talents and gifts. How are we investing those things? I find it to be a pretty common thing that as people get a hold of growing strong in their faith, their eyes kind of open. They get this revelation like, wow, I mean, I love Jesus, but I never really thought about investing my life to build the kingdom. I'm just working my job. I'm doing my thing. When people get a hold of this, it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, no, you're you're a kingdom constructor. (laughs) We're all here to build the kingdom together. And when we, we aim our life, our talent, our treasure in that direction, guys, we tap into heaven's economy. I hope I can leave you with this, encouraged to know the world's economy can fail you. Yes, the market can crash. Yes, you can lose your job. But God's economy will never fall short for those who trust in him and operate by its principles. What kind of treasure are we building up with our lives? Are we exchanging lesser things for greater things? Paul says it like this, 1 Corinthians 3. He says there's a day coming and a day of judgment where each, each man, we will appear before the bema seat, the, the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, everyone's works will be revealed in that time. And he, he uses this picture of like constructing with materials. And he says, if you built a life on certain kinds of materials that whenever we appear before Christ, that there is a a test of fire. Fire will test those things. It's the fire of purification and holiness. Nothing unholy or unpure could ever pass through. He says, when we appear before Christ, if you built for earthly treasure, the fire will burn it up. Now, this is really powerful to think about. He says, that man's soul or woman could still be saved, but they'll lose all of that eternal reward. But he says, for those who built with heavenly things, the fire won't burn it up. The fire actually purifies it, galvanizes it, and solidifies it for an eternal reward. When I hear that, I think, I want, I want to heap up heavenly treasure with my life. Anybody else? Anybody else?